Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Should monuments remain in place even if the people or event they valorize aren't relevant today? State historian Walt Woodward says he and a colleague have wondered whether monuments have an expiration date. Today, where we live, we explore that question. Coming up, we hear from Woodward's colleague, Alan Marcus, from UConn's NEAG School of Education. We'll talk about how to handle monuments when their meaning changes over time. First, we wanted to hear from a sculptor. Dana King has created a sculpture of William Lanson. The New Haven Independent writes, Lanson was a 19th century engineer, entrepreneur, and at one time was elected black governor, a man who freed himself from slavery and built a section of the Farmington Canal. Her sculpture of Lanson will soon be placed on city land in New Haven. Dana King is joining us on Zoom from Oakland, California. Dana, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Lucy. Really glad to be here. And our listeners can join the conversation as well. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Dana, I loved reading that you became a sculptor after leaving a long career as a broadcast TV journalist. (laughs) There is life after journalism. So let me ask how you gravitated towards sculpture. Well, I've always been an artist, but uh, in, a, in 2008, I went back to school to get my MFA in fine art painting. And about halfway through, uh, a friend invited me to take a weekend course with a master sculptor named Philippe Ferreau. And so I, I went with her and it's, it's extraordinary. From the moment I started in with the clay, I was in love. And in fact, I'm sure the sculptor thought I was crazy. I went back on the Sunday morning uh, and I said to him, "Uh, listen, I can't stay. I'm full up to here in my head. And I said, I just have to go do this. And I've been doing that ever since. And that was in 2010. I I love being able to create something in 3D. What was it, it? It comes to life in my studio. Can you tell me about the first uh, sculpture that you worked on? I'm really happy with the way it turned out. <laughs> oh, I laugh because the first uh, first sculpture I did was of my daughter sitting, and and she didn't really want to participate. Um, and I created that sculpture on my kitchen table, and uh, then I then I took some courses on sculpture and I was creating this torso of a, of a really beautiful young woman. And, and every night you, you cover up your work, you spray it down, you cover it with a cloth and a a plastic covering. And, and I did just that. And I apparently put way too much water on it and the fabric was too heavy. And I came out in the morning and it had collapsed. And I didn't get upset. I didn't stop my feet, cry, cuss. I didn't do any of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And that's when I knew I was a sculptor because you just fix it. And that sculpture, I believe, turned out even better than it would have originally. And so it was like a gift to me, a gift of the recognition of patience. And that's what I find in my studio is that it's, it's such a, a comforting place to be. And, uh, and, I, and from there, and I've had other sculptures collapse. In fact, Mr. Lanson, um, <laughs> at one point, uh, there was too much weight I applied onto his torso and he started to buckle on me on his right leg. And I thought, oh, this is not happening this time. And so my son-in-law crafted this, <laughs> this marvel of engineering structure for me that held him up for the entirety of the, of the piece while he was in my studio. Mm. So it's, it's um, sculpture is a challenge always that you work things out in the clay and it, it, I dream about it when I'm, when I'm working on a piece, I, I work things out in my sleep and um, it's just, it's a, it's for me, it's a very exciting art form. Hmm. I was on your website, DanaKingArt.com. Uh, the one that uh, you described that uh, fell apart, was that Phoenix? It's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> it was Phoenix. Look at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why she's named Phoenix because mm-hmm. woo, I pulled her up out of the ashes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that was a, a piece I did. Uh, while I was getting my master. So she's a bit old now. Mm. I understand you work primarily in bronze. Tell me uh, why that is. I love bronze. Bronze lends a strength and character to the piece that just adds to it. Um, the, The way it patinas from weathering and and it's also a metal that lasts forever. Uh, and with it, the story that you're trying to tell with the piece. So generation upon generation can see your work and that story continues to live. And that, to me, is the importance of bronze. Mm. Again, I'm speaking with sculptor Dana King, and she's calling in from on Zoom from Oakland, California. We're talking with her today because uh, one of her most recent works will be unveiled in the city of New Haven, um, a sculpture of William Lanson. I briefly mentioned, uh, gave a description of him. Tell us more about uh, what you learned about William Lanson and the process that you went through to create the sculpture. Well, research informs my work, and it comes from being a journalist. Uh, I, I consider this an extension of, of my work as a journalist because when I worked, you know, I worked in broadcasting, and if you didn't see the story, then, you, you know, it, it was dead, right? So um, sculpture allows the story to continue to be told, and... I did an awful lot of research about Mr. Lance and there's an awful lot written about him. Um, everything except what he looked like. There are no photographs. There are no uh, etchings of him. There's nothing other than the fact that he weighed 200 pounds. So is that 200 pounds 
strong and tall? Is that 200 pounds short and squat? I don't know. But um, I built him tall and strong. Uh, he was a man who carved stone out of a mountain to do the work that he did. It was very dangerous work. Uh, it required great physical strength. And, uh, and so he was also a man who was free. He was a free black man in Connecticut. Slavery didn't end in Connecticut until 1848. And this is a man who used the, uh, the effects of his labor, the money that he was paid. He was paid $25,000 to build out the Long Wharf in New Haven. And then he went on to build a portion of the canal. So that was a lot of money back then. He could have taken that money and built quite a lavish lifestyle for himself and his family. But he took that money and he built community for black descendants and Native Americans and poor whites. He built housing, he built a hotel, he built community for them. And he spoke out on behalf of free and enslaved African descendants. He tried to bring uh, a university to New Haven for black Americans. He was a spiritual man and helped build what is now the Dixwell Church mm -hmm. that still stands and has a significant congregation in New Haven. Um, so his, his import was and is long-lasting. What he did for New Haven was extraordinary. He was self-taught as an engineer. <laughs> um, his intelligence was deep and wide and... Um, and yet every day he walked out of his house, he was a black man in an America that uh, dismissed his labors, that denigrated his, his very being based on the color of his skin. Yeah. But he, he went out every day on behalf of others. And that's why I created him from the period of 1825, because that's when he was elected and that air quotes, elected, mm -hmm. um, the black governor. And he was at his peak of power and, and had great access at that time to important people in the white establishment. And he used that. And he was also physically at his peak. He was in his early 40s. He was born in either 1870, or I'm sorry, 1780s, 83 or two. Um, it's not known exactly when he was born. So he was in his early 40s. And, and I, strong. I understand that the sculpture that you created of Lanson was in your studio at the time when Minneapolis resident George Floyd was killed. And today we're talking mm -hmm. about how the events that are happening uh, in our society impact the way we view these monuments, some that were mm -hmm. put up a long time ago when our values were different, when the people in power were different. When you're putting together or creating the sculpture, how are you connected to the sculpture of Lanson? Um, and what was going through your mind while he was in your studio during the time there was all this coverage on what happened to Mr. Floyd? Yeah. You know, at that time, Ahmed Aubrey was also killed. Um, it, and Breonna Taylor was killed. It, it, 
I'm grateful to have had Mr. Lanson in my studio at that time. And I know this sounds very weird, but he and I communed over this. Um, and I, I got the feeling that, I got the deep sense that, you know, here we are 169 years after William Lanson died. He died in 1851. And we are still fighting the same battle. And that not only disturbs me, but it breaks my heart. He, he helped me through that period um, because I felt like creating him was and is my activism. Mm -hmm. My activism is to create black bodies in bronze and to put them out in the public sphere so that those stories can be told so that African descendants can see their memories, can touch their memories, can, can commune with their memories. Um, I feel like Mr. Lanson would be right there with us in lockstep. Black Lives Matter, critical resistance, abolitionist work, um, defunding police, closing down uh, prisons and um, and just fighting for justice. And so I um, asked for a design change with the Amistad Committee, which is the um, organization that has been fighting for more than seven years to have this sculpture erected in New Haven. And, uh, and, and the Amistad Committee worked in lockstep with the city of New Haven to have this done finally. But I, I contacted them like <laughs> I had this epiphany that uh, William Lanson can represent this struggle today. And so he's standing in a very strong pose. He has his top hat and his right arm and he um, has his leg lifted up onto a piece of rock. So he's going to be on a foundation of three slabs of stone, uh, each six inches high. And so uh, on his leg that's elevated, his hand was just resting comfortably. And I thought, you know what? The way that his arm is positioned, his next move, if I, if I take his hand from a resting position to a fist, would be the Black Power Salute. And so I wrote them this email and asked them after explaining why I thought that that was important. And the founder of the Amistad Committee, Alfred Martyr, wrote me back and he said, among other things, that uh, he would hope that someday in the near, in the future, that a child would gaze up at Mr. Lanson mm -hmm. and ask, why is his hand in a fist? And let that marinate mm -hmm. and hopefully come to the conclusion that it would be the black power fist as his next move would be to raise his arm. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Mr. Martyr said, do it. Mm -hmm. And I got letters from other members of the committee who were in total support of that. And so that, that brings him to today for, for me. And I hope for people who, who witness him and who see him.
Dana King is a sculptor based in Oakland, California. She was commissioned to create a statue of 19th century black New Haven resident William King Lanson. It'll be erected in the Elm City near the Farmington Canal this fall. Coming up, we're going to talk more with Dana King and also about the monuments where you live. How do you feel about statues in your town or city? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Do you pay attention to the monuments in your town or city that highlight the accomplishments of individuals long gone? Do you believe they hold value in helping us learn history, even if their legacies are controversial today? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I've been speaking with Dana King on Zoom. She's a sculptor and artist based in Oakland, California. Uh, T is calling in with a question for Dana. T, go ahead. Hi, how are you this morning? Thank I'm doing well. Um, I have a question for Danny King. My question is, um, why is it important for you as a sculptor, a black woman, to continue to do this work that you're doing? And what is it that um, is important about having statues that represent black people, black life, black culture? Why is that important? Thank you, T. (laughs) It's the core of my work. It's my mission. It's all I do. I don't, I don't submit RFQs for any other kind of work other than to tell the story of African descendants so that our stories can be included in the canon of American history because we built this country. We built this country on our backs and haven't been acknowledged for it, haven't been paid for it, haven't been recognized. And uh, it's my mission to, to create recognition for us. And uh, I, I, I feel like I've been given a gift that uh, demands that I share uh, and, and use it for that greater good. I, I'm stunned that we're not... We're not represented, not only in American history, but we're not represented in art history, mm. not as women, not as black women, not as, as African descendants, period. And I'm 60 years old. I can make, you know, one or two sculptures a year. There are, there are so many talented black artists, black sculptors, Right down the street from me is Branley Cadet, who is an amazing sculptor. Uh, and, and again, we can do one at a time. There is so much work to be done. There are so many monuments that deserve to be seen mm. and to be built and to be placed in the public square to tell our stories. Um, it's funny, you know, everyone I talk to, their phones are ringing off the wall, but um, 
off the wall. That's such an <laughs> antiquated concept. <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> Again, I said I was 60, but, uh, you know, they're, they're ringing and, and, um, and it's, it's a, it's, a, it's obviously a good thing, but where's everybody been, mm. right? Where has everybody been? Well, I wanted to bring into the conversation, uh, Dana, Alan Marcus is joining us also on Zoom today. He's a professor at the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at the NEAG School of Education. We brought Alan on because he's been working with uh, our Connecticut State historian, Walt Woodward, thinking about this question about the role of monuments in our communities, uh, this idea, do they have an expiration date? Alan, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Good morning, Dana. Good morning. So tell me, Alan, a little bit about the work that you're doing. I understand that you've been working with museums as well and thinking about um, how monuments uh, should be viewed and uh, talked about in our communities. Tell me about that. Sure. So I've spent the last 20 years or so working uh, particularly with teachers, K through 12 practicing teachers, having them think about monuments as one of the sources where students can learn history. Uh, and thinking about analyzing monuments and museums more critically. I mean, one of the advantages of using monuments as a classroom teacher is that they're everywhere. I mean, every town in Connecticut has, has mo- different kinds of, uh, kinds of monuments um, and memorials. And I, I don't think the average person walks by a monument, maybe except for the past uh, couple of months, and thinks very critically about them. So the idea for me is to be thinking about it from an educational standpoint and how do we think about using monuments um, and thinking about what their message is, but also thinking about them as primary sources that uh, tell us about the beliefs and the, the attitudes of when they were created. In Connecticut, uh, recently, there have been uh, several cities uh, that are uh, taking down the Christopher Columbus statues. And the question is, well, what happens to these statues? What do you believe should happen? That we repurpose them and talk about that moment in history when the statue was put up, uh, how they may have represented the values of a person or group at the time who may be in power. I'm just curious what you can tell us more about the the thinking about what happens to these statues if they're taken down. Well, as, as Walt Woodward, who's my, my all-time favorite historian, um, talked about this idea that most monuments have an expiration date. Mm-hmm. And the expiration date is not about the aesthetics of, of the monument or about them as a primary source, but the expiration date is about their, their message, their implicit or explicit um, message. And that's what people, I think, are um, objecting to. So, um, we, you know, we can think about sort of three responses to what we do with, with these monuments. One is to ignore them, which is, I think is what has been happening up until now. Um, the second is to reject them, uh, which is what is happening now, where people are just saying, take them down, put them away. We don't want to see them anymore. But the third is to, to reinvent um, uh, or repurpose how we're using them. And so it, it may be that many of these monuments don't no longer be, belong in the public square, um, I, I, I liked how Dana talked about um, how she named her sculpture um, a phoenix because it was rising, rising from the ashes. And I, I think in some ways we can think about reinventing monuments and have them re-rise um, from the ashes by, by recreating what we're doing with them. So for um, example, um, I'd love to see a place like uh, Mystic Seaport um, take a bunch of these Christopher Columbus statues and create an exhibition around them. And the idea is not necessarily celebrating Christopher Columbus, but 
thinking about how Christopher Columbus was an explorer, which connects directly to Mystic Seaport's uh, mission around thinking about exploration and, and America and the sea. But also we can take that and turn that around and think about issues of genocide and Christopher Columbus's relationship with Native American and Native Americans and issues of human rights. So that's one example. The other thing I've been thinking about is, you know, it, it's not just about monuments. Um, and, uh, so for instance, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, there are uh, a little over 1700 symbols of the Confederacy <clears throat> to me in public spaces. Monuments are only about 800 of those, which means there are schools and courthouses and bridges and lakes and military bases and lots of other places that carry the names, for instance, of Confederate um, Confederate soldiers or Confederate leaders. So I think that there's a, it's broader than just uh, monuments. And, uh, you know, today's opening day in baseball and maybe other people like me are excited. Um, <laughs> so we have, you know, Yankee fans and Red Sox fans and Mets fans excited. In, in, at Fenway Park in downtown Boston, they recently renamed Yawkey Way. Uh, and Yawkey, Yawkey was uh, uh, one of the original owners. Uh, he was the owner when baseball was going through integration and the Red Sox were the last team to integrate. And the Red Sox current owners decided, you know what, it's not appropriate for us to, um, to still have Yawkey as the name of one of our streets. Um, and so they changed that. So I, I think the conversation is broader than just monuments, but I think there's a lot of creative things we can do to repurpose or reinvent their uses. So it, the message, it's not about the message, message of the intenders, but it's how we use it today. Mm -hmm. Dana King, what do you think about that? The idea that uh, monuments, uh, again, especially of, of people uh, that have been uh, passed away a long uh, time ago, but their legacies are controversial. I'm thinking of uh, when I lived in Jacksonville, Florida, Nathan Bedford Forrest uh, was someone uh, that you saw a statue of uh, who founded the KKK. Uh, yeah. You know, there are high school, there was a high school named after Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, predominantly African-American high school. Finally, that name was changed just recently. <laughs> uh, but this idea that repurposing a statue of a figure like like this man, uh, that doesn't sit well with everyone, especially when you think about what he represented. Right. I have a lot of thoughts on that, actually. Um, I'm going to go back to the Columbus analogy. Um, or, uh, if, if, we, if we keep telling that story and we broaden it to include genocide and, and raping the land and just, you know the effects of, of colonialization, um, then we, we must tell that story in the same material of Native Americans, mm -hmm. of African descendants, of, of, you know, how there was, you know, just rape and pillaging conducted by these explorers. I mean, so... And that's the same way I feel about the Confederate monument, monuments. If you're going to keep them up, then tell the whole story mm. in the same material, in the same space. I, I do think that people think critically about monuments when they come upon them. Uh, in South Berkeley, where there's significant gentrification going on, uh, a group of, of, of residents who were born in that community wanted to erect a sculpture of uh, Byron Rumford, who was the first African-American from Northern California in the California Assembly in 1948. Um, South Berkeley was 
100% black. Every business you went to was black owned. There are people, I've, I've, I've talked with people who can list everyone's name of every of building store, barbershop, doctor's office, lawyer's office in, in along the street where Mr. Rumford kept his, had his pharmacy. And, and they wanted to erect the sculpture just like they did the Confederate monuments to tell a story. I mean, the monument, the Confederate monuments were, were built to intimidate and to continue to signify, you know, the white stranglehold over everyone else. But they wanted to build Mr. Rumford so that the new residents in the community understood the deep history of the, of the neighborhoods that they were moving into that there was strength and community and, um, and, and great wealth and power in those communities before uh, they were gentrified. And uh, Mr. Rumford continues to be protected uh, in that community. Uh, people watch over him. Someone spray painted him. It was rather nice uh, gold that they spray painted on him. And um, that was the only time it's happened. And immediately I started getting phone calls and text messages and emails. And I mean, the moment it happened, it seems like, and um, from people I didn't know. And, and he was fixed. So, so I say all that to say that there, there is a way to continue to tell the story of history um, and broaden it to make it, the entire story. And, and for the monuments that are coming down and people rushing to replace them, I offer this suggestion. Let them sit empty. Let those plinths sit empty so that we can give great thought to what that message was and why it was removed. I don't want to race into a replacement. You know, we... We, you know, Washington D.C. is talking about taking down monuments, and they already have ideas of who to replace those um, those previous um, sculptures with. Well, unless and until you involve the community with which you you proclaim to represent, then it means nothing. It's just as 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 empty a gesture as the original monument. Community has to be at the table. And, and we have to be the majority at the table because this is about us. And, and un, until that happens, then it really doesn't matter what you replace them with, even if you think that they are, are, are representing community. We yeah. have to be at the table and part of this mm -hmm. conversation. You're hearing Dana King, who's a sculptor and artist based in Oakland, California, on Zoom today, here on Where We Live, with Alan Marcus, a professor at the Yukon's NEAG School of Education, as we talk about the role of monuments and statues in our communities. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Alan, I wanted to ask you what your response would be to what should replace statues. I, I really like uh, Dana's comment about uh, leaving them empty for a while for people to reflect. I mean, anything we replace it with is going to have its own expiration date. Um, you know, we, it's always an issue of agency. Who has the, the economic and political agency to make the decisions about 
what gets put in public spa spaces broadly, in, in, including monuments. But I will um, maybe make one broad suggestion. You know, we, there's been a lot of conversations about, um, and rightfully so, about issues of race um, recently. But, uh, you know, according to the Smithsonian Institute, there are a little over 5,100 public statues depicting historic figures in the United States. And only, uh, and less than 400 of those are monuments of women. Um, and out of the 44 memorials maintained by the National Park Service, none of them specifically focus on women. Um, so, you know, the, this idea that we can include everybody in our stories, um, and I think that's certainly, as, as educators, that's what um, teachers and historians strive for. How do we, how do we include everybody's story? Uh, but that's difficult to do in a public space. Uh, but I, I will say one of the places where we have not done well at all um, are thinking about the, the perspective of women and, and mm -hmm. women represented. And if you think about all the statues, just say, in, in the Hartford area, um, there's only a handful. I mean, Prudence Crandall, Ella Grasso, um, Alice Cogswell, those are the ones I can think of that sort of have their own space um, that aren't uh, with somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, Dana, I wanted to ask you, because uh, Alan mentioned uh, representing women, you created a sculpture uh, of the Montgomery bus boycott at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. Tell us about those three bronze statues, how you hope this sculpture captures that moment in history. Well, thank you for for bringing up my my ladies. Um, <laughs> the the women of the Montgomery bus boycott were phenomenal women. They got up every morning. They cooked and cleaned for their families, and then went out mostly as uh, in service to white families in the community and cooked and cleaned for them. And en route to those jobs they were accosted verbally. Um, it was, a day, they walked everywhere every day and um, they were spit at and cursed out and threatened and, but they did it every day because they were sick and tired of being sick and tired. And uh, so Brian Stevenson, who mm -hmm. runs the Equal Justice Initiative and, and created the, memorial, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, invited me uh, to create a monument to the women of the Montgomery bus boycott. And so um, what we worked out was a sculpture of three women who stand in basically a triangular space, which is um, a feminine symbol, which is a very strong symbol because equal sides and it's very it's very hard to break down right um and and they represent the phases of a woman's life uh, one woman is pregnant one woman is an educator one woman is a grandmother and um obviously the teacher represents what we can provide for our children in a structured way, teaching them their history. The grandmother represents how we teach our children who they are and what they're here to do and teaches them about their past. Because I um, have artistic license, I, I used as models my Aunt Tiny, who was an educator in the segregated South. And if you know Southern um, culture, she wasn't tiny. She was like six feet tall. <laughs> and uh, she was my dad's sister. 
And the grandmother figure is my great-grandmother who was enslaved. Um, we have one family photograph of her. And so I created her um, from that photograph. Mm. And um, it's the story of the women of the Montgomery bus boycott, but it's the story of women in general that we, we fight, we struggle, we nurture, we love, we, we shelter, we, we provide comfort, and we provide strength. And, and that's what these women represent. Mm. And, want- and to Alan's point about the um, 5,100 monuments in the country, that, and so few of them are of women, the city of San Francisco um, decided to do something about its imbalance of, of women in statuary in the city. And the first sculpture that they wanted created was one of Maya Angelou, Dr. Maya Angelou. And, and it was, it's such an exciting journey, but yet it's so fraught with uh, disappointment because what has happened is that, um, that statue's not, it's, it hasn't been created yet because the system established to select artists fell flat on its face and, um, and dismissed the actual labor and effort of, an, of a black artist, a black female artist, and canceled the decision um, even though she was selected to create that art. And it's become this, this mess and, um, and there's no reason for it. There, we ought to be able to um, honor our women. And I would like to suggest by women who sculpt. Um, and it's, it's, it's just, we're getting nowhere fast because of the political climate that we're in. We're getting nowhere fast because of systemic racism in, in, in cities and universities and housing and, and f- food uh, growth and every, in every system. And it's, and it's very frustrating. Mm. And if you're interested in that story, you can um, go to the website, see black women and it will explain every, everything about what's happening in mm. San Francisco with the San Francisco art commission. Oh, you know, Lucy, go ahead, Alan. Yeah, I think um, you know it's if we're whatever we whatever we put in these public spaces, whatever we replace something with, um, it's still going to generate controversy. It's not it's not like um, we're going to find something neutral that every everybody likes. So even something as simple as nine eleven and creating memorials for nine eleven, um, you know, there's over thirty memorials in Connecticut um, for victims of nine eleven, and some of them were very controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, in Greenwich, Connecticut, the first memorial was put out on an island, which was inaccessible in the winter. And they had debates. Do they include the names of everyone who's from Greenwich or just the people who were living there at the time? Um, so, you know, I think, it, you know, you would think 9-11 would be pretty easy to rally around having a memorial. Um, but so I think whatever we replace, we have to expect that um, not everyone's going to be happy. Um, and then how do you make decisions that are sort of 
um, in the best interest of the common good. Mm. Well, we've, you've given us both a lot to think about, uh, again, in this conversation, this debate that won't go away, not only in our state, but across our nation. But I want to thank sculptor Dana King for joining us today uh, from Oakland, California. Again, listeners can see her work at DanaKingArt.com. I can't wait to see your statue of William Lanson uh, in person in New Haven, uh, hopefully in a few months. Dana, thank you so much. Thank you, Lucy. I appreciate you. and I, I'm happy to have been here. And Alan Marcus, thank you for your time today, professor at the at UConn's NEAG School of Education, again joining us today on Zoom. After the break, we're going to talk more about how uh, public spaces, uh, how they should be designed, uh, thinking about the community and uh, the moment that we're going through right now in our nation's history. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. What should communities consider when designing public spaces and public art? Joining us now on Zoom is Marisa Lair, Associate Professor of Art History at Manhattan College, also co-chair of Public Art Dialogue. Marisa, welcome to our show. Thank you, Lucy. So a really interesting discussion with our previous guests about uh, statues that have long been uh, in our communities and how uh, and whether they should be replaced. So when we think about designing spaces and including public art, what should be some factors that communities consider, Marisa? I think some of the factors are points that both Dana and Alan touched on, this idea of not rushing in to design and place a particular subject in the space and to have very long conversations about both the site and the subject. Um, And the other, I think, to consider is just the way that the process unfolds. Um, There's different ways of commissioning public art, um, and it's important to hear from a multitude of both community members, but also specialists in the field of um, public art. Mm. When I think of uh, public spaces, uh, maybe designing something that's more immersive, that could be both permanent and changeable. Are there examples of that today that would be good models for us here in Connecticut as people consider uh, taking down monuments of controversial figures? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of creative responses to these kind of seemingly permanent monuments in terms Mm. of even just the Robert E. Lee sculpture um, in Virginia with mm-hmm. projections, um, it com- which completely alter the subject and content of the monument. Um, so there's been a lot of projections and commemorations of John Lewis and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, but there's also other projects that I think New Haven, uh, or sorry, Connecticut could actually look towards as well. Uh, Melissa Calderon is an artist who created a monument to the sports hero and humanitarian Roberto Clemente and was just recently installed in the Bronx. And um, she actually uses materials that um, your first guest, Dana King, was discussing in terms of the idea of the strength of bronze and how bronze is able to kind of continue the story. But rather than creating a figure of Roberto Clemente, she actually has created um, Roberto Clemente's chair. Um, out of bronze. Um, it's a chair that is surrounded by sugarcane and people can actually sit. It's on the ground level. It's not on a plinth or it's not um, high up. And it's actually people can sit and experience Roberto Clemente's chair. And I think there's something, as you were saying, something very interactive. Um, mm-hmm. It's actually a public 
artwork that both memorializes this incredible figure, but also allows people to kind of actually find, be part of the public space as opposed to just looking mm. um, in public space. We were talking about uh, statues, again, uh, whether they're Confederate uh, statues or statues of Christopher Columbus or even of uh, political leaders, uh, mostly men, uh, throughout our history uh, that people are taking a second look at. Uh, When we think about political movements today, not necessarily led by one person, one man, and so this idea of maybe designing public art in that way, where you're not just putting up a figure, but as you mentioned, a chair and having people be more reflective of what this means. Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, I want to echo Dana's sentiments on that her idea of activism is to create Black bodies in bronze. Mm -hmm. I think that's incredibly important. But I also think the idea of thinking about commemorating groups of people as opposed Mm -hmm. to just one individual is also important, especially given the context of a lot of the protest movements today where they're essentially allowing for multiple voices to be expressed and heard in the public sphere. So they're not looking to just one particular leader. And I think creating public artworks that reflect this this um, sort of contemporary idea and aesthetic of leadership would be really important. When we think about the debate again uh, today, uh, when we look at, at public art, you know, should it be something that uh, starts a, a community conversation? Uh, should it be something that memorializes history? Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? That's an excellent question, and I think one that is constantly being debated. Um, I think one of the issues that's important to think of in terms of public art is the fact that sometimes a work goes up, and I do not mean the Confederate monuments, Mm -hmm. I think that's um, very much part of a racist agenda in US history that needs to be addressed um, immediately. But um, some works even just for their aesthetics aren't necessarily embraced um, in the beginning of of, um, their construction, and then years later, a city will come to embrace it. So this is something like Luis Jimenez, is a Chicano sculptor who passed away um, about a decade ago. And he um, created a work called Mustang in Denver. um, And people hated it. They thought it was aesthetically um, unpleasing, that it was scary. It was part of the airport infrastructure. And um, later on, years later, after it was installed, it's become kind of a symbol of the city. Um, So I think that speaks to kind of Dana's point about you know, either letting a space sit empty or letting a work um, remain where it is for a little bit to see how the community responds. We didn't have too much time earlier in the show to talk about memorials, but this idea of memorializing uh, so many Americans who have died from COVID-19, is that something that you're hearing uh, that communities are thinking about? Is it too soon to think about a memorial to them? In terms of creating immediate memorials, it's absolutely the right time. There's been some very moving projects. Robin Bell is a public artist based in DC who created a COVID memorial projection where she um, projected against a brick wall various people who had passed away from COVID-19 and included both their photograph and then also messages from their loved ones that appeared on social media. So I think that's a really impactful um, commemoration. I don't, I do think it's, you know, we're in the middle of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. The 
the crisis is surging across the um, U.S. and across the world. So I do think it's where it would be too soon to think about what or if we would even want a permanent or seemingly permanent memorial to um, COVID victims. Um, in the 21st century, we are very quick to commemorate um, tragedy and atrocity. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think we, we need some time before we can really think about a national or international memorial in that sense. Mm. Well, I want to thank Marisa Lair again for joining us today, Associate Professor of Art History at Manhattan College and Co-Chair of Public Art Dialogue. Um, is there a place online that you would recommend people go to learn more about, again, thinking about how to design uh, public spaces and including public art, Marisa? Sure. Uh, there's multiple sites, but Public Art Dialogue is a journal. A lot of our um, current content is open. Some of our current content mm -hmm. is open access, so you could look at publicartdialogue.org. Wonderful. Well, Marisa, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you it. so much, Lucy. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. On the board today, Kat Pastor. And coming up tomorrow, having a home or apartment with air conditioning to, the, to escape the heat is important, not only for comfort, but for safety. But worldwide, air conditioning itself also contributes to greenhouse gas emissions. On the show tomorrow, how do we make sure efficient, climate-friendly cooling options are available to everyone when the planet continues to warm. That conversation tomorrow. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.